This episode includes graphic discussions of murder, including the murder of children. Discretion is advised, especially for listeners under the age of 13. July 3rd, 1929. Vincent Elias knocked on the evangelist's door at around 10.30 in the morning. He was meeting Mr. Benny Evangelist to wrap up a real estate transaction. But no one answered. In fact, the house was eerily still. Vincent knocked a few more times before going around to the basement where Benny's office was. When Vincent tried the knob, it was unlocked. He took a small step inside and called out. As his eyes adjusted to the dim light, he could just make out the shape of Benny sitting at his desk. His hands were folded, his head bowed in prayer. He gave no indication he'd heard Vincent. As he approached the desk, Vincent's stomach dropped. Benny wasn't looking down in reverence. He wasn't looking anywhere because his head was completely gone. Vincent turned away from the horrifying sight only to come upon another. Benny's glassy eyes stared up at him, his head surrounded by photos of a child in a coffin. Vincent stumbled out and ran for help. Later, the police would investigate the murder and find the other bodies. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first and only episode on the mysterious murder of a cult healer, Benny Evangelist. On July 3rd, 1929, Benny, his wife, and their four children were found mutilated and beheaded in their home. Today, we'll follow the police as they chase several promising theories, but each one leaves them with more questions than answers. While the homicides are still unsolved, possible explanations abound. Maybe it was a secret society of Italian criminals, or one of Benny's disillusioned followers, or perhaps the murder was an act of vengeance a decade in the making. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. In many ways, the first part of the story of Benny Evangelist is a typical immigrant tale. Around 1904, the 17-year-old made the long journey from Italy to the United States. Upon his arrival, Benjamino Evangelista didn't waste any time changing his name to the more American-sounding Benny Evangelist. But his new moniker wasn't enough to secure a brilliant future. He and his brother Anthony quickly realized the land of milk and honey wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Despite rapid industrialization, work was harder to come by than the Evangelist brothers expected. Even U.S. citizens struggled to find jobs. Many blamed the shortage on the steady influx of foreigners, especially Italians. Eventually, the siblings made their way to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where they finally landed gigs and a place to live. After a bumpy beginning, they slowly settled into their new lives. This is where Benny's story gets less typical. Not long after arriving in Philadelphia, he developed an interest in mysticism. Although we don't know exactly where this fascination came from, it's possible it stemmed from his Catholic upbringing. To a certain extent, mysticism is the foundation of Catholicism, which is all about forming a personal connection to God. And mystics were the ones who experienced that connection in a visceral, often paranormal way. Think being visited by angels. In practice, Catholic mysticism isn't all that different from Buddhist meditation. The idea is to spend extended periods of time in quiet contemplation to better hear God's call. It seems this might have been how Benny started his journey into the occult. He often spent the earliest hours of the morning, from 12 to 3 a.m., in prayer. After a bit, he claimed to receive mystical visions from God. These spiritual revelations weren't about deepening his Catholic faith, though. They were about an entirely new religion, of which Benny was the prophet. In February 1906, he began writing his own version of the Bible. His doctrine had a clear basis in Christianity, but was tinged with non-traditional practices like astrology. According to Benny, the world was governed by beings called celestials. God was the father celestial who ruled Earth. Other powerful figures included the sun, the moon, and seven more so-called celestial commanders. His brother Anthony didn't understand any of it. 
In fact, Benny's bizarre behavior probably freaked him out on a couple of levels. First, he worried for his brother's sanity, but more importantly, for his soul. Anthony was a devout Catholic, just like Benny once had been. He feared his siblings' new ideas weren't just worrisome, they were blasphemous. After years of growing tension, likely sometime around 1910, Benny's theology became too much for Anthony, and Benny moved out. Maybe Anthony hoped a new beginning would snap Benny back to reality, but the opposite happened. Benny's taste for the paranormal only continued to intensify, and their relationship never recovered. Following whatever work he could find, Benny ended up in York, a small town about a hundred miles west of Philly. There he met a man named Aurelius Angelino. The two had a lot in common. They were both from Naples, Italy, and had immigrated to the U.S. around the same time. But they really bonded over their shared interest in the supernatural sciences. Based on what he wrote in his Bible, Benny had likely already dipped his toes into occult waters by the time he got to York. However, it seems like things really took off when he and Aurelius teamed up. The duo spent nearly a decade reading up on subjects like alchemy and ritual magic. But in 1919, the pair stopped working together so closely. The details wouldn't come to light until years later, but when the dust settled, it was clear Benny was ready for a change. This time, he ended up in Detroit, Michigan, a.k.a. Boomtown. Thanks to the exploding automotive industry, the 1920s roared especially loud in Boomtown. The city pulsed with entrepreneurial energy. At first, Benny seemed to take in the radiance and use it to turn over a new leaf. He worked as a carpenter and eventually parlayed that into a profitable real estate career. As his financial status improved, so did Benny's personal life. He married a woman named Santina and had five kids. He bought his family a simple yet spacious house on St. Aubyn Street in the part of town known as Little Italy. But the brighter the light, the darker the shadow. Detroit had an underbelly as seedy as any other big cities. Prohibition meant the black market was alive and well. Bootleggers and gang members rubbed shoulders with the well-to-do in the darkened corners of neighborhood speakeasies. And just like the city he'd chosen to call home, Benny still had his dark side too. For 20 years, he'd been working on his Bible, in February 1926, his work was finally complete. Ready to take on the next phase of his religion, Benny turned his basement into a twisted temple. He filled the room with a disturbing mix of occult and Christian icons and covered the walls with green fabric to give the space a more sanctified air. His altar stood in the center. Above it hung ten or so grotesque wax figures, they were meant to represent the celestial bodies that were central to his doctrine. With so much knowledge under his belt, Benny believed he was more than just a simple prophet. Now he claimed he could heal people of spiritual and physical ailments. Before long, friends and neighbors started coming to him for readings and seances. 
but Benny's supernatural services came at a premium. He was known to charge upwards of $10 for herbal hexes and healing elixirs. Back then, that was a serious sum, potentially worth more than a day's work. It was definitely a lucrative side hustle, and one Benny didn't keep secret. Neighbors often spotted him out on the street, eyes up to the heavens, arms outstretched. Oftentimes, he'd sway and mumble some sort of incantation. No one seemed overly concerned by his behavior. Even if they didn't buy what he was selling, many people just considered him eccentric. Weird, but mostly harmless. He was a fixture of the neighborhood until... On the morning of July 3rd, 1929, one of Benny's associates, Vincent Elias, stopped by the evangelist house for a business meeting. When he walked into Benny's office, he found the mystic decapitated. Vincent called the police, who were shocked when they took in the scene. Benny's body looked like it had been posed. He was seated at his desk, hands folded in prayer. His head sat on the floor near his feet, surrounded by pictures of a child in a coffin. The scene was set up with such precision, it had to mean something. Unfortunately, the investigators didn't have the faintest idea what. Maybe the killer had caught Benny in the middle of his midnight prayer session. It seemed like the attack happened so fast, Benny didn't have time to react. Or perhaps someone wanted it to look that way. As for the pictures, they turned out to be from one of the evangelist children's funerals. The cause of death is unknown, but they'd passed some years before. While exploring the office, authorities discovered a trail of bloody shoe prints leading them upstairs to one of the bedrooms. In the bed, they found Benny's wife, Santina, still in bed with her youngest child. Both of their heads had been bludgeoned beyond recognition, as if by a heavy knife or an axe. In an adjoining bedroom, the three oldest children were discovered in a similar state. Other than the shoe prints, the only physical evidence the murderer left behind were two fingerprints on the front door latch. With so little to go on, investigators would scramble to find anything that even vaguely resembled a lead. All they knew was whoever committed such a brutal crime clearly had a grudge against Benny. A big one. Coming up, the police finally make a break in the case, or so they think. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now back to the story. In July 1929, 44-year-old occultist Benny Evangelist, his wife, and their four children were found beheaded in their home. Police struggled to find evidence that pointed to a suspect. When detectives spoke to Benny's lawyer, they learned his client was involved in a handful of lawsuits tied to his real estate dealings. As far as motives go, this seemed like a pretty obvious one. But the idea fizzled out as quickly as it came. According to the lawyer, the complaints were small and handled quickly. He couldn't think of a single person who hated Benny enough to kill him and his whole family. So, the police focused on Benny's movements in the days leading up to the murder. They discovered he'd placed a call that night. The recipient was watching over a house demolition, and apparently, Benny had purchased all the salvageable lumber. He was calling to have it delivered to his place the next morning. None of Benny's neighbors reported seeing a truck, though. It looked like no lumber was ever delivered. And whatever cash Benny might have planned to pay them with was nowhere to be found. Maybe this was a robbery gone horribly wrong. Unfortunately, no one knew the name of the mysterious delivery company, which meant there weren't any suspects to question or leads to follow. At this point, the police needed to think outside the box, and they may have wondered if the suspect wasn't someone Benny dealt with in his day job. There was always Benny's other business to consider. He charged a pretty penny for his spells and readings, making big claims that almost certainly went unfulfilled. Perhaps the murderer was a spurned follower wanting payback. The issue was, those transactions were decidedly off the books. There were no records for detectives to comb through. Even friends and neighbors couldn't offer much help. If they agreed to speak to the police at all, they said no one had ever heard or seen anything suspicious. We have no way of knowing if that was true or not. After decades of bad blood and unfair treatment, the Italian immigrant community as a whole was deeply distrustful of law enforcement. Many feared talking to the cops might get them or someone they knew in a world of trouble, especially if it involved the occult. So even those who wanted to find Benny's killer likely clammed up when facing a badge. For the police, it must have felt like every road came to an abrupt dead end. The investigation was quickly losing steam. Then, after days of combing through evidence, something stood out among the endless papers in Benny's office. It was a letter, short and to the point, that read, This is your last chance. If that wasn't enough to pique investigators' interest, there was a strange little doodle at the bottom, a crude but unmistakable image 
of an axe. According to the postmark, it had been sent from Detroit just six months before the murders. Officials had come across threatening letters like this one before, and usually they pointed to one group, the Black Hand. As with most secret societies, there are still many questions about what the Black Hand actually was. But based on historical records, the organization rose to prominence after a period known as the Great Arrival. Between 1880 and 1920, more than four million Italian immigrants, including Benny Evangelist and his brother, made their way to the U.S. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, at the time, the economy was in shambles and work was hard to come by. The already struggling American people were, unsurprisingly, not thrilled by the new Italian arrivals. This set off a wave of anti-Italian sentiment that lasted decades. Thanks to popular songs, cartoons, and even newspapers, many American citizens came to believe all Italians were, at best, uncivilized and, at worst, criminals. This attitude translated into systemic issues like housing discrimination, which in turn created pocket communities of Italians within larger cities. Often referred to as Little Italy's, these neighborhoods were often run down and poorly policed. Benny and his family lived in one of these areas. There, residents could avoid the violence they faced elsewhere in the city, but that only eliminated one enemy. There was still another lurking, and it came from within. The truth was, among the hundreds of thousands of migrants arriving daily, a small percentage were, in fact, ex-convicts and fugitives. And they thrived in the under-resourced Little Italy's. It's possible the Black Hand began as a way for these offenders to extort and rob their fellow countrymen. After all, a mysterious and powerful cabal is a lot scarier than a single blackmailer. As far as scams go, it was pretty basic. Menacing missives like the one in Benny's office were their calling card. If their demands were ignored, they got revenge through all manner of heinous acts. Everything from kidnapping, bombings, and arson to, of course, murder. By 1908, references to the Black Hand Society began popping up in newspapers across the nation. Even though their activity appeared to be limited to the immigrant community, the idea of an underground terror network made for flashy headlines. As an added bonus, stories that fueled anti-Italian sentiment likely sold papers. That year, Gaetano D'Amato, former president of a group called the United Italian Societies, published an article pushing back against the myth. He highlighted the ways law enforcement failed to protect the actual victims of these crimes, Italian immigrants. As far as he was concerned, if anyone was responsible for the existence of the Black Hand, it was the police and the press. His warnings went unheeded. The Black Hand continued to gain notoriety, especially as important officials like the Commissioner General of Immigration went on record affirming its influence. To the authorities, the Black Hand was a scourge that plagued nearly every major American city. But there's evidence the group was less a single organization 
and more a helpful cover for local gangs. For example, the Black Hand didn't have a uniform methodology. In some communities, victims' doors were marked with a literal Black handprint. In Chicago, they carved their target's name into a tree, known locally as Dead Man's Tree. Shortly after the name appeared, an attack took place. If these threats were connected, you'd think the perpetrators would issue warnings in a consistent way. Still, the media continued to push the idea of a massive conspiracy. To calm the collective fear, some police departments set up special crews dedicated to seeking out and destroying the Black Hand. After the sinister letter was discovered in Benny's office, the Detroit squad was called in to investigate. And while canvassing the neighborhood, they found another evangelist family, also on St. Aubin's Street. It turned out they'd had a run-in with the Black Hand three years prior. Apparently, someone in the family had killed a Black Hander who'd been attempting to blackmail them. Fearing revenge from the group, the other evangelist had fled to Pittsburgh. Officials wondered if Benny was accidentally targeted in his stead. Detectives dug into the theory, even traveling to Pittsburgh to interview the man in question. But ultimately, they didn't find anything to connect the two cases. These other evangelists weren't even related to Benny. However, while going through Benny's bank records, they'd learned he'd sold a significant amount of property over the last couple of years. And yet, his account balance was astonishingly small. They figured the money must have gone to pay off the black hand. But ultimately, they weren't able to confirm their suspicions or find a solid connection between Benny and any organized crime outlet. In fact, Lieutenant Max Waldfogel, a senior member of the squad, determined the language in the threatening note was totally wrong for the Black Hand. Plus, in all the cases he'd worked on, he'd never seen an image of an axe or investigated an axe murder. Then, there was the ritualistic way Benny's body had been arranged. Although they might have been an ancient order, the Black Hand wasn't linked to anything even vaguely mystical. In the end, nothing came of the organized crime explanation, and investigators were back to square one. They'd have to wait nearly a year for their next plausible lead. But in 1930, they uncovered a man from Benny's past with a serious hatchet to bury. Coming up, a dark event eerily foreshadows Benny's fate. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now back to the story. After nearly a year of investigating, detectives weren't any closer to nailing down a suspect for the evangelist murders. So, officials decided to dig into Benny Evangelist's past. And when they came across the story of his old friend, Aurelius Angelino, who helped Benny write his Bible, it triggered major alarm bells. Remember when we said the two had a falling out before Benny moved to Detroit? Well, that was a bit of an understatement. Here's what actually happened. Benny and Aurelius spent years diving into the occult, performing various spells and rituals. But after a while, Aurelius started to change, becoming more irrational by the day. Some of his friends and family members blamed his involvement with Benny and the dark powers they invoked. But Aurelius's erratic behavior could have had more to do with his physical health. In 1916, Aurelius was in a car accident and suffered a serious head injury. For the next few years, his mental state steadily deteriorated until 1919, when he was committed to the County Insane Asylum. According to an article in the Lancaster News Journal from that May, Aurelius was released at the request of his wife, Helen. Apparently, the doctors were happy to let him go. They said the entire three months he was in the hospital, Aurelius, quote, acted rationally, end quote. Unfortunately, that all changed when he and Helen returned home. Their first night, Aurelius barely slept. By the next day, his erratic behavior was back in full force. At one point, seemingly out of nowhere, he slapped Helen across the face. Even so, the couple went to a neighbor's place for lunch around noon. The two oldest children went with them, while the younger twins stayed behind. As soon as they got back to the house, Aurelius demanded Helen cook even more food. She tried to reason with him, reminding him they just ate. But it was no use. While she got to work in the kitchen, Aurelius went to the twins' room and shut the door. That's when Helen heard loud banging sounds, like someone swinging a bat in an enclosed space. She called for Aurelius. He came back to the kitchen, picked up a large carving knife from the counter, and lunged at Helen. She managed to dodge and run outside. Meanwhile, Aurelius stripped naked and brought his son's bodies out to the front yard. They were mostly decapitated, their skulls crushed beyond recognition. When police arrived on the scene, Aurelius was standing in the yard at a makeshift table, methodically dismembering the bodies with an axe, babbling to himself. Officials arrested him without resistance. Before they took him to the county prison, Aurelius said, I didn't do it. Someone else did. Shortly afterward, he was sent to the Fairview State Hospital for the criminally insane. But after four years, He escaped. Aurelius was never seen or heard from again. 
Helen seemingly blamed the entire tragedy on his 1916 car accident. She told reporters before then he'd been a good man and an even better husband and father, but he was never the same after the head injury. Despite what Helen said, neighbors whispered that Aurelius's mental break must have had something to do with his and Benny's sinister pastime. Maybe the grisly murders were part of a spell or a ritual. Whatever the case, people were pretty sure Benny was involved, but there was no proof. Newspapers didn't mention Benny even as a witness. And as far as we know, he was never an official person of interest in the twins' double homicide. That is, until June 1930. We don't know who or what tipped them off, but eight months after Benny's murder, Detroit detectives compared his fingerprints to those found at the Angelino scene in 1919. We don't know if they were a match, but they were pretty similar. It might not seem like a big deal that Benny's fingerprints were likely in the house. After all, he and Aurelius were friends. However, these prints were found in the twins' room, left in the blood spattered across the walls. Investigators briefly entertained the wild idea that Benny and Aurelius were in fact the same man. Perhaps Benny slash Aurelius waited a decade to finish the dark business he started back in York. This time, he managed to sacrifice an entire family. If this sounds absurd, that's because it is. Plus, it's easily disproved with records and witness accounts. No one took it too seriously. What seemed much more likely was that Benny was somehow involved in the murder of Aurelius's sons. Maybe it was a sacrifice the two men had planned together, but when things went south, Benny left Aurelius to take the fall. If that was the case, it made sense that Aurelius broke out of the hospital and tracked Benny down to exact his revenge. It was the most compelling motive investigators had come across so far. Plus, they couldn't ignore the fact that the crimes were nearly identical. Partial to nearly complete decapitation by bludgeoning is a pretty specific and uncommon way to kill. Then there's the ritualistic way Benny's body was posed. Aurelius was as big of a fanatic as Benny when it came to the occult. Perhaps the pictures of Benny's late child were a reference to Aurelius's sons. The only proof the authorities needed was Aurelius's fingerprints. If they matched the ones left on Benny's front door, it would be case closed. Unfortunately, it wasn't so simple. According to the Detroit PD, they couldn't track them down. As unlikely as it might sound, it's possible Aurelius made it through prison and the state hospital without anyone making a record of his prints. Or maybe they were lost in the deluge of documents flooding the administrative offices. Either way, neither Aurelius nor his prince were ever found. You almost can't blame the police for giving up at this point. Their best suspect was basically a ghost, leaving them and us with questions that have gone unanswered for nearly 100 years. Like, was Aurelius the one who sent that ominous letter? It seems likely, especially if he was the killer. 
some wonder if he invented a delivery company to gain access to Benny's house. That might explain why the lumber never arrived and no one appeared to know anything about it afterward. The occult connection makes this cold case all the more haunting, literally. Although the Evangelist family home was demolished a long time ago, the vacant lot where it once stood is said to be a hotspot for paranormal activity. Some people report hearing screams echoing through the darkness late at night. Others have seen a headless apparition walking the land. Maybe Benny's spirit is still waiting for justice to be served. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau, our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Megan Hannum, edited by Natalie Pertsovsky and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Catherine Barner, researched by Josephine Cahew, recorded by Freddie Rivera, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound design by Anthony Valsic. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.